You are listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 73. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your host, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe, which you can find at metamorecity.com. You can find my other work at chrislester.org. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. Now, you may have noticed that the audio quality on this intro is not so great. That is because I am on bed rest this weekend, so I am not going to be able to stand up in the recording studio and do my usual spiel. Because of that, I'm also not going to be reading chapter 22 of Things Unseen this week, because when I record the audio for that, I want it to actually be of professional quality so that I can then use the same audio in the audiobook. So this week, instead of chapter 22, I'm going to bring you one of the bonus stories that I aired on the Patreon feed that has not gone out on this feed yet. It's called Drabbles of the Gods, and this is actually a collection of 100-word stories about the members of the Pantheon in the world of Metamore City. If you're a subscriber to the Patreon feed and you've already heard this story, stick around for after the show, and I will have my weekly update, and I will also have feedback. So, without further ado, here's this week's story. Drabbles of the Gods Akala, Lady of Healing The earthquake had flattened the city. Dakir dragged himself from the rubble, his leg broken. For twelve hours he lay exposed. No food, no water, no shelter, no hope. He woke to the sound of shuttles. They came from the sky like angels, brilliant white, red spirals coiling on their wings. Medic splinted Dakir's leg, took him to their camp. A tall woman walked the line of wounded, touching each in turn. Her hand touched his leg and made it whole. Great Maker bless you, he said. She smiled sadly. The Great Maker has judged me. This is my penance. Agemnos, Lord of Avarice. Leo looked down at his virtual body, strong and handsome. Amazing, he said. There's no pain. None. I keep my word, Agemnos said. I'll say, Leo agreed. So I work for you in here until my real body can be fixed, right? If it ever becomes possible to restore you, yes, we'll pull you out, Agemnos said. Until then... You'll be a virtual god of cyberspace. Sounds fair, Leo said. Back in meat space, Agemnos patted the vat 
where Leo's brain and spinal cord hung in a nutrient bath, bonded to a thousand cybernetic links. I keep my word, Leo. Always. Ball, Prince of Shadows. Elaine was smug as she examined the forbidden tome. Her master deemed her unready, but the spells came easily to her, as she knew they would. She raised her hands, spoke, and the world parted around her. The Shadow Realm was darkly beautiful. She moved like a ghost, faster than thought. No door was barred to her, no secret beyond her reach. She would be everywhere, learn everything. In the shadow of her master's chambers lay a secret room. The dark, handsome man inside held a silver collar bearing her name. You forgot to read the fine print, he said. Devalin, Lord of Wine and Weather. Connell strode through the palace, lip curled in disdain at the young beauties in their satin robes. Refusing offers of food, wine, and company, he marched to the inner sanctum. His eyes flashed in warning, and the guards gave way. The fallen god slouched on his throne, two concubines draped atop him. One held a chalice for him. The other read him reports of his kingdom as his hands fondled breasts and thighs. His eyes fell on Connell and flashed, just like Connell's. Father, Connell said, you and I need to talk. Duvalin sighed. Bugger, he said. Not another one. Klepnos, the trickster. Tamara stood fidgeting before the Majestrix. Sorry to interrupt, ma'am. It's all right, Kaya said. You have a message? Yes, ma'am. From Lord Klepnos, for your ears only. Kaya nodded. What is it? Tamara hedged. He said it was very important... Yes? Um, the price of turbot in Yamato is 400 yen per kilo. That's all? Yes, ma'am. I see. Kaya tapped her desk thoughtfully. What are your orders, ma'am? Kaya hesitated only a moment. Get me the Minister of Trade, and put in a call to the Prime Minister of Yamato. We'd better have a talk about fish. Oblineth, Lady of Winter. 
The storm drove the ship onto the rocks, tearing the hull like tissue paper. Bjorn's heart sank. He'd known crabbing was dangerous business, but he'd never believed the sea would take him. He could see Port Erebus on the horizon, hopelessly far away. Halder knelt and prayed. Bjorn laughed scornfully. Suddenly, an arctic wind blew out from the land. The sea groaned. A sheet of ice spread over the water, seizing the ship, stilling the waves. A tall, pale lady arrived with the rescue sleds. She smiled at Bjorn. You're lucky Halder has more faith than you do, she said. Revenos, the Reaper. He had no body, no flesh. His power had been stolen. He had no eyes, no ears, no tongue. But he still had his hatred. It kept him alive, if one could call this life. He floated between earth and the hells, stalking, waiting. He sought the souls like his own, black with hatred, seething with rage, their lives and work cut short before their time. He drew these black souls to himself. He coveted them, cherished them. He was supposed to send them on to their reward, to the dark hells that awaited them. Instead, he sent them back. Richter, Lord of War. I am the greatest battle mage of our time, Heiko boasted. Face me in a duel. Let's see if you're still worthy to wear that mantle. The old raccoon man smirked. You think you can kill me, eh? What would you do if you had my job? The warrior code has been forgotten, Heiko said. I would restore it. Men need a righteous, honorable war to ignite their spirits. Richter gestured. A quarter mile away, a sniper fired. Heiko's knee exploded. He fell, screaming. Richter watched as Heiko was bound and carried off. War changes, he told him. Idiots never do. Suspira, Lady of Passion. The rock star woke in the hospital, tubes inserted all over his body. A machine did his breathing for him. He remembered being invited to play an exclusive concert for the Church of Hedonism. He remembered the hall packed with cheering priestesses, all of them gorgeous. He did not remember the after party. A woman entered. Her flame-red hair and emerald eyes seemed strangely familiar. 
She smiled. You were a big hit last night. My girls loved you. She held up a check, ten times his usual fee. Congratulations. You're about to be a father. Five hundred times over. Talia, the Vampire Queen. The Vampire Prince prostrated himself before her throne. Hands accustomed to command turned upwards in pleading. A lord does not rule for himself, she said. He cares for those under his command, protects them. This you have not done. My queen, he begged. I have done all to increase your wealth, your power, your glory. Have mercy. She smiled thinly. Mercy is Artella's domain. Strong hands dragged him out to the forest. She stood over him with bow, quiver, and sword. Evade me until daybreak and you shall have your freedom, she said. You desire mercy? Then earn it. Run. Talakath, Lord of Pestilence. Kibwe thought he was hallucinating when the pale man walked into the village. All around him lay the bodies of friends, family, the fever had taken him last. Gods be praised, he whispered, reaching out a trembling hand. The stranger knelt beside him. He didn't take Kibwe's hand, but his bloodshot eyes glistened. I've come just in time, he said. I feared there would be no one left. Only me, said Kibwe. Please, need water. I can't do that, the stranger said. It would contaminate the experiment. He sat on the ground. Now then, tell me exactly where it hurts. Elena, Lady of Love. Jim was waiting for her when she came home. He sat staring at the mirror, like he expected to see some change. Of course, he wouldn't. Then he met her eyes, and she knew it was over. Why? she asked, tears welling. My last grandson died he said. Old age. I can't do this anymore, Val. Please. She took his hand, kissed it, and withdrew her power. Slowly, he began to die. She took him to the couch and laid his head gently in her lap. I'll love you forever, she whispered. He smiled. Of course. 
It's who you are. Kaya, the Guardian. Tommy was lost. The Citadel's hallways and tunnels went on forever. He should never have gone out on his own. Mama would be worried. The girl in the gray dress sat on a bench next to a fountain. She smiled and waved at Tommy. Wanna play? she asked. I can't, Tommy said. I gotta get back to our hotel. But I don't know the way. That's easy, the girl said. Come on. She led Tommy to his hotel room. Mama hugged him tight. Thank you for helping my child, she said. Of course, the girl said. You're all my children. Mirai, the star child. She woke from dreams of fire and blood. She ran to her window, looked out. The city still stood, for now. Shadows were approaching. She could not see them, could not name them, but she felt them, growing in her mind. She knelt before the yew tree. What must I do? she prayed. Have I done right? Are you still with me, Lord? She stilled her mind and waited. In the silence, in the darkness, two words took shape. Have faith. The last prophet of Eli bowed her head, folded her hands over her heart. I will try, she whispered. And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be back with more of Things Unseen. Syndicate versus Lightbringers. Don't miss it. Janet Frame said, Writing a novel is not merely going on a shopping expedition across the border to an unreal land. It is hours and years spent in the factories, the streets, the cathedrals of the imagination. So, grab your GPS and your travel guide, and let's check out my latest expedition. Here's your weekly writing report. Last week I wrote 5,804 words over the course of 7.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 801 words per hour. This week I broke my chain on October 4th, after 119 consecutive days of writing. After that, I decided to spend the rest of this week focusing on the business side of Liminal Corvid Press, specifically working on the cover for The Lost and the Least, and on the print version of Divine Intervention, the second Metamore City story collection. Because of that, this week I only wrote 1,993 words over the course of 3.25 hours, for an average of 613 words per hour. I'm going to spend the rest of this weekend continuing to work on the business stuff, and we'll probably continue on that into next week. 
Once I have the paperback version of Divine Intervention ready to go, then I'll get back to work on my writing. For last week, and the half of this week when I was writing, I went back to work on The Lost and the Least. One of the nice things about having multiple projects going simultaneously is that I can hop back and forth between them depending on what I'm feeling excited about. After pushing to 7,000 words on The Blood God's Gift, I decided I needed a break from it. So, now I'm back to Kate and Will and the rest of the gang in Metamore City. The Lost and the Least is now in Chapter 34, and the manuscript is around 115,000 words and counting. Looking back at the month of September, I wrote a total of 27,093 words. That's my second highest monthly total ever, surpassed only by November 2015, when I wrote over 33,000 words. I wrote on all 30 days last month, averaging 903 words per day. Compared to August, that's a 33% increase in word count and a 30% increase in my writing time. Over on the Patreon feed, I started doing a behind-the-scenes commentary on each week's episode. Here you can find out what I was thinking about as I wrote each episode, hear bits of trivia about the world of Metamore, and learn about real-world events that inspired parts of the story. If you'd like to hear these commentaries, it's easy. If you're a Patreon patron, you automatically receive your own custom RSS feed, which you can plug into the podcatcher of your choice. Just go to my creator page at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You'll see a link to your own personal RSS feed there, on the upper right part of the screen. If you're not yet a patron, why not join the dozens of fans who are already helping to make this show happen? All you need is a PayPal account or a credit card, and you'll get all the bonus episodes, bonus artwork, and more. Again, that's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And now, the feedback. Maurice Oakes writes, So, a question I was meaning to ask. Was it a choice to have the men changed by the rift be the ones who die or go mad, leaving the girls to be the ones placed in jeopardy during the greater length of the book? If not a conscious choice, do you think there might be some subconscious process at work to try to activate readers' higher degree of protector instinct? Hi, Maurice. That's a great question. The issue of who dies and when is something that took me a while to sort out. I started plotting things on scene back in 2008, so my memory is a little hazy, but I do remember a few things. In my original outline, Sefi did not end up as the repository for so many spirits. When Bernie and Hal died, they just died and took their symbionts with them. Then Sefi died in the hands of the vampires. Meanwhile, Zeke and Julia fled from the vampires together and ended up at the Nexus, where they drew on its life mana, supercharged their powers, and hauled off the vamps until the Lightbringers arrived. Zeke wasn't crazy in that outline, and he was hosting one of the Rift Spirits. As the story grew and got fleshed out by the actual writing, though, I saw several problems with my original plan, and several opportunities that I hadn't realized at first. The biggest issue was that I needed a source of conflict between the nobles, both to make things interesting and to give Kate a lever that she could use to get them to talk to her. Given Zeke's arrogance and the romantic triangle he'd assembled around himself with Hal and Julia, it made sense for him to be at the center of that conflict. 
So Zeke became more chauvinistic, possessive, and paranoid, and that had a bunch of other effects that rippled through the rest of the story. The other big change was Sefi. I had no idea what had happened to her until Kate and David walked into her bedroom in the Hedonist Temple. Once we got there, and I saw how she was telepathically connected to the rest of the spirits, I realized that I had a way to save Hal, Bernie, and their passengers. That was important to me, because it made the story a lot more hopeful, and also because it was Hal's mother that started this whole thing, so it made sense for Hal to be with them to the end of it. It also made sense that the vampires would do everything possible to keep Sefi alive while she was in their custody, since she had a valuable set of abilities they were hoping to exploit. So it was really an accident that all the guys ended up dying or going crazy, and all the girls ended up being the ones who needed saving. That's a little bit tropey, but the story also has a lot of women being strong in a lot of different ways, so I'm not too worried about the damsel in distress syndrome. Great question. Thanks for asking. Hi, Chris. This is Nobilis Reed. Just finished the most recent episode of Metamore City as I'm pulling into the office parking lot, and I thought I would sit and record some feedback for you. Uh, we got a big chunk of exposition there about the Talvari in this episode, and the war, and the end of the war, and all that kind of stuff. It appears that the characters there in the shuttle have assumed that all of the Telvari were destroyed, which seems weird to me, because in any modern civilization, that is anything beyond a medieval level of technology, international trade and diplomacy is going to leave expatriates in other countries besides their homeland. And when that homeland is destroyed... I, you know, those people will become a culture to themselves. So there are very few modern cultures that have been destroyed that way. Uh, you, you have, you know, people who they've, they've tried to destroy, uh, like the Armenians, for example. But, you know, there's always some left and they would, they would construct an identity or continue a cultural identity after the event. And um, it would seem to me that there should be somewhere in the world that Metamore City lives in, a Telvari culture, a human Telvari culture, that survives the Balefire. Now, maybe there is, and these characters just aren't aware of it, or, or for whatever reason, they haven't. But in the face of an event like that, people tend to hold tight to their culture. So I'm, I am uh, curious about the status of human Telvari in your world at this point. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that often some comes up, like, in other stories and stuff, but uh, it would be interesting to see a, um, a story about a Telvari in Metamore City. Anyways, that's the thoughts I had as I was doing this. Keep up the good work, and I'll talk to you again later. Bye. Hi, Nobilis. You're absolutely right. There were human Telvari who escaped the destruction of their homeland, a few chapters ago, we met one of them. Malcolm's neurologist, Dr. Ezekwe, met him at a benefit dinner for the Telvari diaspora. When David said there was no one left to negotiate with after the Balefire spell, he wasn't saying that there were no more Telvari left anywhere in the world. He meant that the Balefire completely destroyed Telvar's political and military leadership. 
The people who survived were low- to mid-level officers and enlisted men deployed in other countries, and expatriates and merchants scattered around the world. None of these survivors had the authority to speak for the Telvari people as a whole, so none of them could have signed an armistice on behalf of their country. Now, the democratic solution to this problem would be to get all the surviving Telvari together and have them elect a leader to speak on their behalf. That didn't happen for a number of reasons. First, there's the pragmatic answer. Telvar was uninhabitable, and as far as anyone knew at the time, it would remain uninhabitable for centuries. There was no point in setting up a Telvari government in exile when they would have no chance of going home again. It was more realistic, and perhaps kinder, to encourage the surviving Telvari to start new lives for themselves in other countries. Second, you may have noticed that Metamor isn't exactly a pure democracy. The nobility have a lot of power and influence in the government, and the nobility tend to think about political power in terms of bloodlines and heredity, rather than the will of the people. Before Telvar was a republic, it was a collection of squabbling city-states, but before that, it was a kingdom with a royal family. That royal line had been shattered by political unrest when the kingdom fell, but one of their princesses had married into House Kapler. In the minds of Metamor's nobility, House Kapler were thus the rightful heirs to Telvar. In the aftermath of the Balefire, the Metamorian Senate and the Council of Peers quickly recognized House Kapler's claim. Again, they didn't expect to actually profit from this directly. The land was scorched and believed to be worthless. But this was a handy way for the nobles to reassert the primacy of the monarchy, while also making Telvar permanently subject to Majestrix Kaya and the Empire. Thanks for calling in. Hey Chris, this is Steven, Greenville, South Carolina. I listened to the original Metamore City podcast, and uh, I enjoyed it. I kept the feed open, hoping you'd bring it back, and you did. Thank you so very much. Um, I was playing around on iTunes, and I saw a podcast, Raving and the Writing Desk. I don't want to miss any content. I'm still subscribed to the Metamore City podcast. Uh, which podcast should I subscribe to? Should uh, both? Do they both have the same content? Anyway, thank you so very much for bringing your stories back. I've really enjoyed them. Bye-bye. Hi, Stephen. For now, this show is being simulcast on both the Metamore City feed and the chrislester.org feed. I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. First, I wanted people who had been subscribed to the original show to be able to easily find the new show. As your call demonstrates, this is working. Second, my eventual goal is to have a podcast feed where I can air other content that isn't related to Metamore City. The chrislester.org feed is intended to serve as a central location where all my future creative efforts can have a home. I also wanted the Raven and the Writing Desk to have its own listing in iTunes, because most of the reviews on the Metamore City feed were written for the original show, and I want people to have the opportunity to share their thoughts about the new format. Right now, I'm not sure how many people are discovering the Raven and the Writing Desk through the new podcast feed. If you're listening to this show, and you found the podcast through chrislester.org or the Raven and the Writing Desk listing on iTunes, please send me a note and let me know. Eventually, I hope to move all of my ongoing podcast activity to chrislester.org. I'll let you know long before that happens, though, 
So if you're currently subscribed to the feed for metamorecity.com, you'll continue to receive episodes of the show there for the foreseeable future. Thanks for the question. Hey, Chris, it's Sarah Testarosa. I just wanted to leave a very quick feedback on the latest bit of things unseen. I was pleasantly surprised, although pleasantly would probably be a strange word because of learning about the atrocities during the uh, global war, but I was pleasantly surprised at the turn of what exactly these beings in the rift are. That was very, very cool, very unexpected, and yet made a lot of sense since they don't seem very alien, as, you know, David was saying. I like how you had different characters have different knowledge bases and kind of different relationships to their knowledge about the thir- the uh, global war. I forget if it was the second or third. But um, anyway, I like how you addressed that. And it was just a very kind of heavy chapter and just very neat reveal. So well done with that uh, part of the story. And definitely for people who aren't part of the Patreon, if you can afford even a dollar a month, I definitely recommend you do it because the background info that we're getting on the episodes is really interesting and it's in audio form right now. So yay, Patreon. And oh, also, I just remember that you aired the interview with Scott Roche. I had already listened to it and I didn't listen to it again as of now, but that was a really great interview and I really enjoyed Scott's uh, story coming home again. So it was cool to hear that interview the first time around and to read his novella. So, yay. All right, okay. That's that's it for now. I said I'd be quick, so there you go. All right, take care. Bye. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Minimore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To support this show and help me keep making it, make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The links will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. I'll be back again next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.